In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Last week and this week, we consider the superabundant generosity of God. Last week, we considered the superabundant generosity of God in regard to his grace toward unprofitable servants. To those who worked only one hour a day in the vineyard and who rightly earned nothing by their labor, the landowner paid a full day's wage. By this, we learn that God rewards us always and only according to pure grace. He does not reward those who earn something. He rewards those who earn nothing. There is no greater work that anyone can do than to believe that God is gracious towards sinners for Jesus' sake. There is no greater work than to believe that sinners are justified freely through faith in the redeeming work of Christ. Faith glorifies God more than any other good work because faith attributes all merit and worthiness to the Son of God and not to ourselves. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith is a good work that God rewards not because it is so virtuous a work or because of how much it manages to accomplish. No, God rewards faith because of what faith receives. Faith trusts in the reward according to mercy. Faith receives the perfect obedience of Jesus, which he himself labored to fulfill in our place. And it is God himself who works such faith in our hearts. St. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And this means that faith itself is a gift from God. Faith is not our work that we contribute as though Christ's work for us plus our faith in him equals salvation. No matter how generous we are with the ratio, it is not true. The Holy Spirit works the faith, the gift of faith in our hearts by pure grace, and our salvation is purely passive. The faith he gives is both the information that teaches us what is true as well as the confidence by which we trust in what he promises. The Holy Spirit creates faith in us through the word that we hear. St. Peter says in his first epistle, chapter 1, that we are born again not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides forever. The seed is the word of God. Just as God is very superabundantly generous with his grace, so God is just as superabundantly generous with his word. The seeming recklessness of the landowner we considered last week is matched very well by the sower in today's parable. By the landowner's recklessness in paying generously, Jesus teaches us to understand how intensive his grace is. By the sower's recklessness in sowing seed, Jesus teaches us how extensive his grace is. Last week's landowner seemed more determined to pay laborers for work they did not do than to get any work done. Similarly, our farmer this week seems more determined to scatter his seed as far and wide as he can than to ensure a decent crop. But this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. And we are exalted to know it by the abundance of such wonderful revelation through Christ Jesus. Now, if God's primary goal were to get work out of us, Jesus might well learn a thing or two from us on how to manage his vineyard. 
If God's primary goal were to get as large a yield as possible, well, then Jesus might learn a thing or two from us about how better to plant seeds and spread the word. But alas, God's primary goal is not to get anything from us at all. His primary goal is not to squeeze productivity from us or to maximize his success or boost numbers. His primary goal is quite simply to save us. His grace is in. So we considered last week, there is no merit on our part, but only kindness on his part. God's grace is extensive. So we consider this week, his grace is for all people, everywhere, near and far. And so he causes his kingdom to extend to all the ends of the world. He does so through the preaching of his holy word. But make no mistake about it. While God's primary purpose is for us to be saved and freely rewarded with eternal life without requiring any works, it is certainly our Lord's desire that we work. It is certainly his desire that his vineyard be tended and that his fields yield a harvest. He who works faith in our hearts says that we are his own handiwork, created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. And he who casts seed wherever he goes also rejoices at the hundredfold bounty that each seed yields among those who, upon hearing God's word, bear fruit with patience. God desires fruit. So yes, while it looks like God's superabundant generosity is reckless from our perspective, there is nothing reckless about it. God knows what he is doing, and he is in control of what he aims to get. God knows always what fruit he is producing. No tinkering with grace or tampering with the truth of God's word to make it more agreeable to more people can possibly make his kingdom come more effectively. God's perspective is very different from ours, but it is his word, his grace, and his kingdom. This morning I would like to consider a very similar good work to the good work of believing the gospel. It is the good work of preaching the gospel. In either case, it is a good work that only God can create or bless. Hearing and believing the gospel depend on the preaching of the gospel, and preaching the gospel is always for the sake of those who have ears to hear it. In the Apostle Paul's second epistle to Timothy, St. Paul charges the young pastor, to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season, to be a reckless sower, so to speak, to convince, rebuke, exhort with all patience and teaching. For the time will come, he writes, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, he says to the preacher, be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. The time will come, and it sure has. There is no shortage of false teachers or itching ears. Many today are taught to regard God's word as nothing but the words of men. 
with plenty of truth to be sure, but not without mistakes and errors. With this false teaching, it is no surprise that the grace of God is also therefore mingled with and made dependent upon human works. In fact, these two errors are twin errors that always go together. To censure God for his recklessness and being super abundantly generous. To deny the superabundant generosity of God in regard to the truth and power and sufficiency of his word is to deny the superabundant generosity of God in regard to his grace. And vice versa. We must beware of both. And our lengthy epistle lesson for this morning from 2 Corinthians 11 and 12, St. Paul is contending with this very thing. Those to whom he first brought the saving gospel are turning away from it. They're listening to false teachers who impress them. False doctrine appeals to man's reason and flatters him. This is what makes ears itch. The Corinthian congregation now expected the Apostle Paul to reprove his own credentials as an apostle. Why should we listen to you, dear Paul, and not to these other teachers? Early in his letter, Paul refused to give such letters of commendation to them. He appealed to their own faith, which he sought to rescue from false doctrine. As he asked the, the Galatians, did you receive this faith by the works you did or by grace? He told them that they themselves are his letters of commendation, written not with ink, but by the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. Here is my letter of commendation, Paul writes. I taught you to rely on grace alone and not the works of the law. In other words, Paul refuses to prove his status as an apostle of Christ with anything other than by preaching the same gospel they heard at the beginning. And this should be what commends a teacher to us as well. Does the minister of Christ preach God's word faithfully? Does he preach the gospel without compromise? Or does he flatter you? Does he add human works to God's grace? Does he insist that human wisdom must make sense of God's word? Does he let the current culture determine what sins we should be ashamed of? The false apostles had flattered the Corinthians by boasting, so they expected Paul to boast as well. Right before our lesson begins, we hear Paul warn the congregation with those famous words, Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light, in other words, don't expect anything to commend a preacher to you other than the truth. Don't look at his appearance, popularity, or success. Open your ears and listen for Jesus. But if you insist that I boast, Paul continues, then let me boast in my weaknesses. So here our lesson begins. He says that they willingly put up with fools who abuse them. That is to say that by letting the false apostles boast, they're willing to be deprived of grace alone. To our shame, Paul writes, I say that we were too weak for that. In other words, there's a lot of abuse I'm willing to put up with. But one thing I am too weak to bear, I cannot permit the gospel to be twisted. I cannot bear the word of God upon which my faith depends to be twisted. 
I am too weak to let my salvation depend one tiniest bit on my own merit. I need grace and grace alone. I guess I am too weak for anything less than grace alone. Then Paul retells all the abuse he has put up with in defense of grace alone, in defense of the pure word of God. He boasts in his weakness, a weakness we must all have. The weakness that says, hurt me, rob me, imprison me, drown me, starve me, betray me, and I will put up with it. But oh, do not dare take the gospel away from me. This bondage alone I cannot bear, for Christ has set me free, and nothing able else is able to free me from my sin. As St. Paul makes a fool of himself by retelling all that he suffered, there is one thing that stands out. He says that besides all these things that he has suffered for the sake of the gospel, there is something that comes upon him daily, for he is not shipwrecked daily or starved daily or imprisoned daily. But every day, he is overcome by something that is worse than it all. My deep concern for all the churches, he says. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? If there is one common trial that binds both pastor and congregation together, both apostle and all the churches of God, it is this. If there is one burden that every Christian knows, it is this. The word for concern is the same as the word for worry. It is often supposed that the thorn in Paul's side, which he complained about, might have been poor eyesight. But I don't think so. The Bible doesn't say, so I guess we can only guess, but Paul doesn't even list blurry vision as one of the things that he suffers from. No, I think we have the answer in this affliction here. He worries. Jesus tells us not to worry. Jesus tells us to trust in God our Father. It is wrong to worry. But Paul worries. Oh, what an affliction. Have you ever asked God to help you not worry? Have you ever begged God to give you a trusting heart? To help you commend what grieves you to God's merciful protection and guidance? St. Paul sure did. Has it ever gone away? For this reason, the deep anxiety that St. Paul complains about is surely a messenger of Satan. God says, do not worry. The devil says, worry. God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. God and the devil says, but, but will he have mercy on you? Or on the one you are so distressed about? God says, cast all your cares on me, for I care for you. The devil says, if God cares, why doesn't he do more than leave you to worry? No, you must do more than trust in God. His grace is not enough. His word must be added to to make it more successful. And then what does the devil prescribe to the one who is overburdened with worry? What work does he leave you with? He leaves you to nothing more than the same fruitless worry. And we fall for it. 
The devil tempts us to believe that God's grace is not enough to save. He tempts us to believe that his word is not enough to call back the erring and deceived. He tempts us to believe that God's fatherly concern is insufficient to manage his vineyard or cause fruit to grow. The church needs more. The church needs a cultural revolution. The church needs more money and influence. And then he tries to convince us that we must supplement God's grace and God's holy word with the most ineffective thing ever. Worry. Which is doubt. Which leads to despair. Which leads to blaming God for his reckless nonchalance and governing his church on earth the way he does. And who can shake this worry? It is the worst. We know we shouldn't worry. Our Father knows what we need. And we know that. So what do we do? We try to sanctify our worry by trying to lessen our worry. Instead of calling it worry or anxiety, we call it concern. But you know it's all the same word. We do not sanctify our worry by lessening it, by growing cynical and caring less. No. Nor do we sanctify our worry by worrying about heavenly things instead of earthly things. Are not heavenly things just as much unsolved by worrying as earthly things? Our worry doesn't feed and clothe us. Does our worry convert the lost or bring the fallen to repentance? No. We cannot sanctify our worrying by tweaking our perspective. God sanctifies our worrying by teaching us his perspective. God sanctifies our worry, that devilish thorn in our flesh that Satan afflicts us with daily. God sanctifies our worry, not by convincing us to care less or about nobler things, but by teaching us to commend it all to his own grace revealed in Holy Scripture and made sure in the person and work of his Son. And this is the whole point of all three lessons that we heard this morning. Paul's deep concern has nothing to do with what he will eat or drink or what he will wear. Many pastors are starved and mistreated and could very well worry about these things, and they do. God bless them. And Paul more so. But the worry Paul complains of is worry for all the churches he planted. He worries about the young man who is contemplating moving in with his girlfriend and throwing away the good conscience and eternal life that Jesus purchased and won for him with his own blood. He worries about the young lady who already has moved in with her boyfriend, who no longer confesses the faith who ignores his letters, his phone calls, and avoids running into him. He worries about the young couple who skips church routinely because of how busy they are, the parents who make excuses for their children, but who don't seem to understand what great danger they're putting themselves into. He worries about those who who just disappear for weeks or months and don't come to hear God's word or receive the forgiveness of sins. Who knows what false doctrine they're consuming? Who knows what sin they're falling into? He worries about the same things that you worry about, and more, perhaps. He worries if his words are touching hearts or discouraging them. He worries if people are faking it when they're friendly, and if inwardly they are 
scandalized by the truth that they hear. He's worried. Just as you may be worried about the grandson who isn't baptized yet, the godson who says he isn't sure that God exists, the daughter who has completely denied her baptism, you worry. By examining the trials that are common to the preacher, we are taught also how to understand the trials that are common to all who believe. We are truly in this together. We worry. We have no control over those who hear the word. We wish we could. We wish we could force them to believe. But all we can do is confess what we believe. We have no control over how our loved ones will abuse God's grace and treat it as a small thing. All we can do is confess our sins and rejoice that we ourselves are saved by no merit of our own. That's the intensive grace. We have no control over how or whether God's word works as he promises it will. And the devil, by tempting us to worry, would convince us that we need to add something in order to make God's promises more sure. But the, devil's, the devil is a liar. God's grace is always sufficient. So that we never forget it, so that we never depend on ourselves, God tests our faith. He permits those things to happen that make us worry, even temptations that try us. Lest we ourselves be exalted above measure by the abundance of what glories God has revealed to us, God tests our faith. He tests our faith to strengthen our faith. He teaches us to put our roots down and draw all the more earnestly from the grace of God's holy word. He lets Satan himself harass us with worry, worry, but God uses the devil's temptation for our good. He forces the devil to be his own messenger. The devil would drive you away from God's word, but God forces his temptations to drive you into his word. It is the word of him who endured every temptation for you, who overcame the devil in the wilderness, and who won the victory. So the preacher asks, what more can I do? The concerned father or mother, brother or sister asks the same. To the preacher, preach the word. To the Christian heart, listen. Hear what God says and live on it. God's word is super abundantly generous to supply the super abundantly generous grace of Christ to you. His grace is sufficient, for no temptation has overcome you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with every temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. You bear it by clinging to Christ, by hearing his word. And so hereby you bear great fruit, fruit that can only be born in patience and reliance on the grace and mercy of Jesus. So you sanctify your worry, not by worrying less, not by caring less. You can't control it. But by commending all your cares and worries to God, trust in the power of his word and persist in prayer. Remember how God answered the prayer of his own son, who also, like Paul, begged three times that the cup be taken from him. Thy will be done, he prayed. And so by the fruit of his suffering, 
we see that grace is sufficient for us. By the fruit of his suffering given to us in the body and blood of the Lord's Supper, we are strengthened to rely upon grace. We are strengthened to trust in his word, though we do not see its truth. But we know it. What thorn of worry did not crown our Savior? What distress for you did he not bear? On the cross, he proved God's eternal care for you in all afflictions. He proved the sufficiency of his grace and the certainty of his holy word. He proved God's good will for you. In Jesus' name, amen. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding shall guard our hearts and minds in Christ unto eternal life. Amen.